This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Bringing Christianity to the Americas. Missionaries and Missions. The spread of Western, and particularly Christian civilization, from Europe to the rest of the world is a magnificent story. Unfortunately, most of America's young people never hear it. Most of those who do hear it get a doctored, out-of-context version written by woke so-called historians who abandon the truths of history to promote their political agendas. This episode of the Return to Order Moment will try to set the record right. Of course, a single podcast cannot undo the years of work that the university propagandists put into their lies, half-truths, and out-of-context conclusion. Hopefully, enough people will hear this to begin to make a dent. Our first essay is written by one of the young men in the TFP's Sedes Sapientes Institute, Mr. Kevin Roman. He wrote recently about a great missionary in his essay, St. Anthony Mary Claret, apostolic missionary, ultramontane champion, and crusher of communism. St. Anthony Mary Claret was an apostle par excellence, preaching and prophesying wherever he went. He zealously defended papal rights and fought against the errors of the early to mid-19th century, especially liberalism and communism. Much can be said of this extraordinary saint. He was a visionary, a slave of Our Lady, an apostle, a counter-revolutionary, an ultramontane, a prophet, a miracle worker, and a crusher of communism. This essay will quickly summarize the life and legend of St. Anthony Mary Claret. St. Anthony was born in Salant, the Diocese of Vich, in Barcelona Province, Spain, on December 23, 1807. From a very young age, he had a great devotion to Our Lady. He later said that he never tired of praying to her, knowing she always listened to her faithful sons. This great devotion would be his salvation. Growing up, St. Anthony was very involved in his father's weaving business. He decided to go to Barcelona to study and master the craft. Once in Barcelona, St. Anthony focused on weaving. He would go to Mass on Sundays and feast days, but spent the rest of his time and energy on weaving. Thus, he neglected his priestly vocation, which he perceived at a young age. One day, while wading in the sea, St. Anthony was dragged by a huge wave that pulled him out into the deep. Since he could not swim, he called upon the Blessed Virgin to save him. He soon found himself on the shore, shocked and semi-conscious. While recovering, he realized that he had almost died, and then contemplated the state of his life and vocation. He decided to change his ways and end his mediocre life by entering the Vish Diocesan Seminary to pursue his priestly vocation. At the seminary, he came upon the book True Devotion to Mary by St. Louis de Montfort and consecrated himself as a slave to Our Lady. After being ordained a priest, he felt called to missionary work. He profited from St. Ignatius of Loyola's spiritual exercises and adopted the Jesuit missionary spirit. In 1849, he founded the Congregation of the Missionary Sons of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, which sought, quote, 
to imitate Jesus Christ in working, suffering, and always seeking only the greater glory of God and the salvation of souls. Unquote. Blessed Pius IX approved the congregation in 1865. Shortly after the founding of his congregation, he was appointed Archbishop of Santiago de Cuba at the request of Queen Isabella II of Spain. During his time in office, he reorganized the Santiago Cemetery and restored church discipline. In his first two years alone, he validated over 9,000 irregular marriages. He visited his entire diocese three times, preaching and distributing the sacraments while erecting a hospital and many vocational schools for young people. His exceptionally powerful voice attracted multitudes, churches, and sometimes even city squares could not contain those who came to see him. Captivated by his holiness, many people would follow the saint to the next city, where its inhabitants would often go out upon the road to meet and welcome the man of God. The saint immediately set to work, barely eating and only sleeping two hours a day. St. Anthony was also well known for his prophecies and exorcisms. He predicted an earthquake or a plague that threatened the city. Announcing it as a chastisement from God, he would admonish the people to convert from their perverted ways. He also predicted the deaths of people. Once, for example, he addressed some women, saying, You women! You think that you still have a long time to live, but you are mistaken. You will die in six months. Unquote. He would exercise demons from the crowd, saying, I will expel the devil that hovers over this audience. Unquote. Following those statements, the multitude would see and hear many strange noises and phenomena. At one point, a devil wounded his side so badly that his ribs were exposed. He prayed to Our Lady and was cured. The saint also worked many miracles and had numerous visions. Witnesses saw his body become transfigured while praying or preaching. He would levitate off the ground, stop earthquakes and storms by praying, and was even seen walking on water. While celebrating Mass, a supernatural light would radiate from his body. Queen Isabella wrote a statement declaring that she had personally witnessed the miracle. St. Anthony also had visions of both Our Lord and Our Lady. The most important vision was when Our Lord told St. Anthony of three great evils then falling upon mankind. First, a series of enormous horrifying wars. Second, the four powerful demons of pleasure, love of money, false reasoning, and a will separated from God. And third, communism. Our Lord told the saint that communism would be the great foe of humanity and that devotion to the blessed sacrament and the rosary were the means to fight it. St. Anthony also fought against Freemasonry. His opposition to the sect led to at least 15 assassination attempts on his life. 
to prevent potential assassins from attacking him when pressed by crowds, the people devised a wooden frame in which he walked to keep anyone from getting close. One time, someone associated with Freemasonry stabbed his cheek. The person was captured and sentenced to prison. Another time, a person hired by Freemasonry was sent to kill St. Anthony. The assassin entered the church where St. Anthony was preaching. Upon getting close to the saint, the assassin heard St. Anthony state that people would be sent to kill him. The words awakened sentiments of guilt, and the man converted. After the sermon, the would-be assassin told the saint of the plot and asked for pardon. St. Anthony then pardoned the man and helped him to escape from the Masons, who were plotting to kill him for his failure. Because of the many assassination attempts, St. Anthony was transferred to Spain to be the confessor of the queen. When St. Anthony arrived in 1857, he found that the queen was a liberal. However, through his intercession and counseling, the queen became very anti-liberal and was eventually overthrown. For nine years, he was the rector of the Escorial Monastic School, and whenever the opportunity arose, he would go out and preach to the people. In 1869, he went to Rome to prepare for the First Vatican Council. He was an enthusiastic supporter of the Ultramontane movement and always fought for the rights of the papacy, including papal infallibility and primacy. Thus he said, quote, The dogmatic declaration of the infallibility of the Supreme Pontiff is extremely necessary for the Church. It is a matter that is feared very much by evil men. For this they have done all the efforts possible so that it is not declared. Hopefully, in the confession of this truth, I could shed all my blood. However, I could consummate my career confessing and saying from the abundance of my heart this great truth. I believe that the Supreme Pontiff is infallible. St. Anthony loved these principles so much that during the council, Upon hearing the anti-papal arguments, he became full of indignation and suffered a stroke. He never recovered from its effects and died some months later. St. Anthony died on October 24, 1870, at age 62. He was canonized on May 7, 1950, by Pope Pius XII. In 1897, his relics were transferred to Vic, Spain, where his heart was found incorrupt. Let the intercession of this great saint obtain for us the grace to fight against communism and all modern errors. St. Anthony Mary Claret, pray for us. The next two essays focused our attention further north, to areas that eventually became parts of the United States and Canada. There are many great missionaries that we could speak of in this context, but Mr. Joseph Jensen's, a recent graduate of the Institute, chose a lesser-known figure. He described this intrepid nun in his essay, The Mystic Who Became a Missionary, The Extraordinary Life of St. Marie of the Incarnation. On August 1st, 1639, 
A ship sailed up the St. Lawrence River and dropped anchor before Quebec City. The vessel held some special passengers. On board, four Ursuline missionary nuns looked eagerly upon this new land to which they were bringing the light of the Catholic faith. Coming ashore, the leader of this band of missionaries, Mother Marie of the Incarnation, later wrote of their arrival, quote, The first thing we did was to kiss the earth of this new land to which we had come in order to spend our lives there in the service of God. Unquote. Mother Marie of the Incarnation was a native of France. Born on October 28, 1599, in the city of Tours, she was the daughter of a devout Catholic baker, Florent Gaillard, and his wife, Jean. While still young, Marie planned to join the Benedictine nuns. However, her parents wished for her to marry. She married Claude Martin, a silk manufacturer, and later gave birth to a son they named Claude. Tragedy struck when Mr. Martin died. Marie returned to her parents' house. There, she gave her son to the care of a nurse to divide her time between earning a living and praying. Marie chose to make a vow of chastity, even though her family wanted her to remarry. She wrote that, Our Lord granted me great graces through this sacrifice, powerfully sustaining me to withstand the pressure put on me to remarry. Unquote. Throughout her life, Marie had mystical experiences, which she later wrote down in her autobiography. She would be completely immersed in these mystical experiences. She records in one episode how, quote, One Lent, when a good Capuchin father had preached a sermon on our Lord's Passion, my spirit was so strongly plunged into this mystery that day and night I found it impossible to listen to anything else. Unquote. After ten years of work and prayer, Maria Gaillard entered the convent of the Ursuline nuns. In 1633, she made her final vows, taking the name Marie of the Incarnation. It was a few years into her new life in the convent that she began having visions in which she saw herself in Canada, bringing souls to the faith. Led by the grace of God, Mother Marie secured permission to go to the Canadian missions. In 1639, her dream became a reality when she set sail with some companions for New France. Later, she wrote of the voyage, quote, The entire trip across the ocean was a time of ardent and constant sacrifice for me, unquote. The ship narrowly escaped ramming a massive iceberg while in a thick fog. They finally arrived at the beginning of August. Mother Marie and her sisters lived a rugged pioneer life, fraught with the perils of living on the edge of the wilderness. Despite the dangers of attacks by wild natives, the threat of wild beasts, and the harsh winters, this intrepid missionary was full of courage. Shortly after arriving, the nuns established a convent and a school for the French and native girls of the colony. 
They instructed the girls in a tiny room that was used for eating, sleeping, and entertaining people. The habits of the native girls left much to be desired. Sometimes the nuns found items like hair or charcoal mixed with the daily soup. However, with true Christian charity, the nuns taught the young native girls the faith with its civilizing influences. God tests those he loves, and Mother Marie was no exception. Over the years, she experienced many trials. A decade after their arrival, a raging fire destroyed the Ursuline convent and all the hard years of work. Among her many achievements, Mother Marie succeeded in writing a catechism and two dictionaries in native languages. She was actively involved in teaching the native girls all of her life. Most importantly, Mother Marie was a fearless missionary who answered God's call to go to the New World and bring the Catholic faith to its peoples. On April 30th, 1672, Mother Marie went to her eternal reward. Nearly 350 years after her death, Mother Marie was declared a saint on April 3rd, 2014. Today, we know very few of the names of the many missionaries that came to America to spread the good news of Catholic faith and the advantages of Christian civilization. Fortunately, there are a few locations that we can go see some of the signs of the conditions under which they labored. One of those is a reconstructed fort called Michilimackinac, located at the northern tip of Michigan's Lower Peninsula. A few years ago, Mr. Edwin Benson visited and described it in his essay, A Rare View of Frontier Catholicism in America. Frontier Catholics? What frontier Catholics? The idea that there were Catholics on the American frontier is unfamiliar to many. The early history of the United States is often thought of as a product of Protestantism. Our earliest settlers, so the accepted story goes, were English, some Puritans and some Anglicans, but all Protestants. Maryland, it is said, started out as a Catholic colony, but it did not stay Catholic for very long. The coming of Catholicism to the United States is generally associated with the Irish potato famine in the middle of the 19th century. Those immigrants, brutally poor on their arrival, settled in cities along the Atlantic coast, especially New York and Boston. Therefore, early Catholicism in the United States is assumed to be an urban phenomenon. Obviously, there are lots of holes in this story, and a little study of the history of Catholicism in America could fill them in. The point is that most people do not think of the Catholic Church as part of the early life of the United States. They do not know of the Jesuit missionaries of Lower Canada. These people might be in for a bit of a surprise if they should visit northern Michigan, for at the northern tip of the Lower Peninsula is an outpost of frontier Catholicism. It lies in a reconstructed French fort and is known by its French name of St. Anne de Michelamackinac. Missionaries of the Society of Jesus, commonly referred to as the Jesuits, 
created a mission called St. Marie on the eastern side of Lake Huron on Georgian Bay in modern-day Ontario during the mid-17th century to meet the spiritual needs of the soldiers, fur traders, and the Hurons and other tribes around the Great Lakes. In 1649, the Iroquois began systematic attacks on the Hurons and the Jesuit missions. Among the victims were the eight Frenchmen who came to be referred to as the North American Martyrs. As a result of the attacks, the Hurons moved west to what is now the Michigan side of the lake. Some Jesuits moved with them, establishing a mission that they called St. Ignace after St. Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits on the Upper Peninsula. By the early 18th century, the French saw a need to construct a wooden palisade fort in the area. The Church of St. Anne was first constructed outside of the Palisade about 1720. The fort was expanded a decade later and once again in 1744. At the time of the second expansion, a new St. Anne's was built. This second building is the one whose reconstruction can be seen there today. The community was small. Eventually, about 40 houses would be constructed within the fort. The population was made up of missionaries, soldiers, and merchants. During the summer, the population would swell temporarily as peddlers brought products to the merchants and the fur traders came in with the produce of their winter's labors. The sacraments and prayer were very real parts of the life of the fort. On June 23, 2015, the reality of those prayers was shown when the archaeologist James Dunnigan found an intact rosary, estimated to be 250 years old, on the site of what was once a home within the fort's walls. The reconstruction of St. Anne de Michelamackinac as it stands today is a rough, rather crude structure. The original old building was torn down long ago. The parish, however, did evolve over time to become something larger and more ornate. The British won the fort from the French in 1760 during the French and Indian War. They later abandoned Fort Michelin-Mackinac, which included St. Anne's. The old church was dismantled and moved to the new Fort Mackinac on the nearby and more easily defended, Mackinac Island. By 1821, the relocated building was gone, although the historical record does not record whether it was demolished, burned down, or met some other fate. A replacement church building was completed in 1827, which was, in turn, replaced in 1876. Today's visitor to Mackinac Island will find the parish still very much alive in its pretty little Gothic building. In 1959, the state of Michigan decided to reconstruct the French fort as a stop for tourists crossing the new Mackinac Bridge. An archaeological process began that continues each summer. In 1964, they began to rebuild the church building at the fort. The location was known because a map of the fort had been drawn in 1766. 
The archaeologists found evidence of a small building built around 1720 that was replaced by a larger one around 1740. Other than the fact that it was constructed of squared-off logs laid horizontally, no one knew for sure what it had looked like. Fortunately, about three months before the reconstruction was to begin, Michigan historians heard about an existing Jesuit church built only a few years later in rural Quebec. A further coincidence connected the two buildings. The Quebec church had been constructed in 1747 under the direction of Father Claude Godefy Coquart, S.J., who had served at the fort while St. Anne's was being built. Using the Quebec church as a guide, reconstruction began. During the 90s, the reconstructed St. Anne's took on the form we see today. The box pews found in Quebec and reproduced for St. Anne's were determined to be later additions, as was a statue of St. Anne that had been placed there. Both were removed and the pews replaced by benches. However, a warden's pew, common in both French and colonial churches for laymen of special status, was built and placed in the correct position. Two important items were missing from the reconstructed church. There was neither a baptismal font, nor was there a confessional, omissions that the 19th century Jesuits would certainly not have made. Examples from the time were copied and installed. Another very important correction was the replacement of the very simple and inaccurate altar installed in 1964. Historians found other altars in Jesuit churches of the period. They were considerably more ornate than the table that had been placed there in the 1960s. The altar makes the greatest impression on entering St. Anne's. At first, it seems out of place in so simple a building. The altar is lovely with its painted Agnus Dei, gold leaf, and golden crucifix, tabernacle door, and candlesticks, surmounted by a kind of crown-like structure with a cross at the top. While not as ornate, the turned wood baptismal font and paneled confessional are still items of craftsmanship and simple beauty. It may take a moment or two to process this information, but the devout Catholic will sense the meaning of this, even if it is somewhat difficult to put into words. Everything that has to do with the sacraments is beautiful. The walls and the roof can be plain. All they do is keep out the weather. The benches only provide a bit of comfort for the worshipers. However, the baptismal font and the confessional bring us to God, a matter of eternal importance. The altar is God's alone, and the place where his sacrifice will be celebrated on a daily basis the throne on which he will repose until the next Holy Mass. The altar, and to a lesser extent the font and confessional, are the reasons that this place is here. This is no gathering place, no social hall, no venue for whatever entertainment may be available. This is holy ground, the place in which God in his massive benevolence comes to us, just as he came to soldiers, fur traders, and villagers almost four centuries ago.
Oh, come, let us adore him. This concludes Bringing Christianity to the Americas, Missionaries and Missions. Thank you for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. And you can hear our program in two ways. The first is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. Listeners can help Return to Order be more effective by giving us a five-star rating with their favorite podcast service. Subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will find the Return to Order moment online. We would also like to recommend Mr. John Horvat's book, Return to Order. It is available as a free download on our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2023 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.